Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor Medicine Cases. In the first part of this podcast, we mainly talked about our general approach to bradycardia, sorting out the differential, and sorting out the ECG. Now it's time to move on to the nitty-gritty of treatment of the various bradydysrhythmias. And I'd like to start off with a case. EMS rolls in with a 60-year-old gentleman who they say has a history of diabetes and hypertension, who had a crescendo onset of crushing central chest pain radiating into the right shoulder associated with shortness of breath and diaphoresis one hour prior. They hand you an ECG, which shows a classic inferior STEMI pattern. They told you that his vitals were stable when they arrived at his house, and they gave him one spray of sublingual nitro and ASA to chew. He's hooked up to your monitors in your recess bay. His heart rate is 37 in a junctional bradycardia. BP is 90 on 60. He's alert and he tells you pretty much the same story that EMS told you, but now he feels very dizzy and he asks you, am I going to die? So Dr. Dorian, how would this case be handled in the ideal situation? So here's what I would be thinking. Uh, you know, obviously, why is the patient this bradycardic? There's two possible reasons, which may be coexisting. Three, actually. One is that the most likely thing is the patient has an inferior or posterior wild myocardial infarction, often with right ventricular involvement. So the bradycardia by itself is a consequence sometimes of the myocardial infarction itself, which can involve the AV nodal artery. Typically, this is inferior or posterior MI, and this can cause a heart block with, with a junctional escape. So that would be one possible problem. I'm just talking about the bradycardia. We'll come to the hypotension in a second. The second is that nitroglycerin can directly cause, by chemostimulation, receptors in the posterior wall of the left ventricle, uh, which can cause a direct either vagal discharge or direct effect on the AV node. This is, if you like, chemical toxicity from nitroglycerin, separate and apart from nitroglycerin-induced hypotension. So nitroglycerin-induced bradycardia. Separate and apart from that, you've got, of course, nitroglycerin-induced vasodilatation and hypotension. And separate and apart from that, you can have right ventricular infarction-related hypotension where the treatment is fluids and potentially revascularization. And this is often not easy to treat. So these patients have a sort of multifactorial cause for hypotension and Two factors related for the bradycardia, but they're both related to the ischemia, either ischemia infarction or nitroglycerin or both. And Dr. Hedayidi, what would you actually do in the moment in the emergency department with this patient? Text bomb the cardiologist to come and take the patient to the cath lab immediately. <laughs> um, but until the cardiologist arrives, you're going to temporize. So now the goal is to make sure the patient survives the emergency department to make it to the um, cardiac catheterization 
lab. And so this is where you need to start thinking about, okay, get my pacers on, the pacer pads on, and maybe this is where we want to go straight to transcutaneous pacing. You can certainly try atropine, um, particularly if the patient is circling the proverbial drain. It may or may not work. It may make things worse. But certainly if, if you need to temporize so that the patient survives to the cath lab, by all means, you have atropine available to you. You have transcutaneous pacing uh, available to you. You can certainly give them a IV fluid challenge to help with the hypotension, fill that RV in case that's the issue um, leading to the hypotension. And then we're getting our other medications drawn up. So maybe I need to temporize with something like dopamine or epinephrine if my other modalities don't help. All right. So suffice to say that in the patient with obvious cardiac ischemia and bradycardia, really the primary thing should be getting them to the cath lab. But we can do a lot in the emergency department to bridge that. And sometimes it becomes very challenging in an unstable patient getting them to the cath lab because the last thing you want to do is send a very unstable patient out of your emergency department. So stabilizing these patients can be a challenge. So before we get into the details of the drugs, I want to talk about whether you're going to give drugs first or pacing first and how you make that decision. So how do you make that decision? The answer is all of the above simultaneously. So certain agents are available immediately, and I can pull those from the crash cart or from my Pixis. Other agents might be hard for me to get and may need to come from inpatient pharmacy, in which case that's not particularly helpful in the moment. So I'm going to put the transcutaneous pacing pads on, and maybe I can lead with that. And so, you know, if the patient is really you know, circling the drain and I need to do something immediately, I'm probably going to lead with transcutaneous pacing, hoping that that will kind of bridge them, particularly if there's signs that they are underperfusing their CNS or their myocardium. Um, if I have a little bit of time and I have time to play with some some agents, then I might lead with that maybe a little bit of atropine or maybe a little bit of dopamine or epi before I do transcutaneous pacing. So for me, it really depends on the clinical scenario and what the patient looks like. Keep in mind that transcutaneous pacing can be uncomfortable, especially if the patient is awake and they're mentating. So now in order to transcutaneously pace, I may need to provide sedation to the patient, which I may not want to do, particularly if they need to consent for the cath lab or if the sedative agents that I'm going to give could potentially make the situation worse. And so maybe leading with an IV medication is the way to go in that scenario. All right. Our escalating drug options for the symptomatic bradycardia patient in general is usually starting with atropine, then quickly moving on to epi or dopamine or both if atropine fails, and then isoproterenol, which is basically epinephrine on steroids. Now, I need to emphasize here before we get deep into the drugs that there is a serious paucity of randomized trials out there for these drugs in bradycardic patients. So we're essentially in an evidence-free zone, basing our recommendations on ACLS guidelines some observational data, and expert opinion. And of course, the underlying cause needs to be taken into consideration. So, you know, for the tox patient, if it's a beta blocker overdose or a calcium channel blocker overdose, we're thinking about calcium, we're thinking about high-dose insulin. You know, for DIG, we're thinking DIGIFAB. And for the hypothermic patient, 
We're generally not giving any of these bradycardia meds initially. We're rewarming the patient first. So that aside, let's let's drill into each of these medications one by one. So first, there's atropine. Dr. Dorian, we all know that atropine is considered the first-line medication for symptomatic bradycardia in the ACLS algorithm, but we all know that it also fails a lot of the time. In fact, about 70% of the time, according to the observational studies. Which bradycardias are likely to respond to atropine is the first question. And then the second one is, are you going to do any harm if you give atropine to a patient who's unlikely to respond? The atropine works in in the AV node, not on the distal conduction system, and it works by antagonizing the effects of acetylcholine or vagal stimulation on the AV node. So if the problem is in the proximal AV node, most of the time atropine will work. An exception would be just the case that we talked about, or if you have an inferior myocardial infarction, then for reasons that are not entirely clear, atropine may be ineffective. It's not likely to be necessarily harmful. There's a few situations where you might get into trouble. We'll come to it in a minute. Listeners may want to remember that you do not want to use super low doses of atropine. Let's not worry about the mechanism. But if you're going to use atropine, just use one milligram. The effects last anywhere from two to four hours, uh, and you're not going to get into trouble by giving an insufficiently small dose, which can lead to paradoxical worsening of heart block. So One milligram of atropine will work in most cases of proximal AV block, but not always, and it will be uniformly ineffective in distal AV block, as we just talked about. There is anecdotal experience in patients who've had a heart transplant for reasons not entirely clear, uh, where the heart's denervated, where you can have atropine-induced paradoxical bradycardia or worsening of AV block, Uh, This happens in about 20% of patients. It may happen in other situations. It would be pretty uncommon. The mechanism is not understood, but it's probably uh, increase in endogenous adenosine levels for reasons that are completely mysterious. So in the rare situation, which might happen where you've given atropine at the proper dose, if nothing happens, it just hasn't worked. If for some reason things seem to be getting worse, then at least in theory, aminophilin might be uh, a treatment. But now we're talking about small print here. So in the cardiac transplant patient who has bradycardia, we should be on the phone with people like Dr. Dorian before we even consider giving any of them atropine. Correct. That, that, that is correct. Okay. And I want to get back and clarify a little bit about the patient with ischemia and bradycardia when it comes to atropine. For patients with an anterior MI as opposed to inferior MI, what are they more likely to take out? Are they more likely to take out something proximal where atropine is likely to work, or are they more likely to take out something distal where atropine won't work? It's a very important question. AV block in the presence of an anterior MI usually means infarction of the proximal septum. It's usually either left main or left anterior descending coronary artery occlusion. Uh, These patients are very sick. They're often in shock, not just because they have AV block, but also because they have a large myocardial infarct. Uh, We absolutely want to treat the bradycardia urgently. Sadly, these patients have a very poor prognosis, not because necessarily of the AV block, but because they've had a massive myocardial infarct. So basically, 
This is a 911 on steroids call inside the hospital. If you have somebody with chest pain, even a hint of anterior wall myocardial ischemia and new AV block, this is a disaster. These patients need all of pressors, urgent revascularization, increasing their heart rate, uh, and they still do badly, sadly. Right. Uh, There's a few questions that are coming up in my mind here. And the one is, you have a patient with ischemia, and we all know that things like dopamine and epinephrine will just worsen ischemia. So you're kind of caught in a little conundrum here. How do you decide when you have a patient with ischemia-associated or induced bradycardia whether to reach for the epinephrine or dopamine? And do you, would you change the the dosing? Would you, you know, how, how do you make that decision? I'm always a bit reluctant to be giving whopping doses of epinephrine in a patient with ischemia who's bradycardic and not doing well. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely correct. This is a very difficult situation. These patients are hard to manage. Unless the patient's in overt imminent cardiogenic shock or they're not perfusing, uh, if their blood pressure is 90 over 60, like the example you gave, Giving fluids is is reasonable. Now, there's obviously a problem. If the patient has severe LV dysfunction, you might precipitate pulmonary edema. But these are the kind of patients that are really hard to manage unless you have all the information available. An art line, sometimes a Swan-Gantz, uh, availability to measure the right atrial pressure, the wedge pressure. Uh, you want to get these patients to the cath lab. These are very tough to manage in the emergency room. I think the, the thought I would like to leave with your listeners is that in the, in the situation of an inferior wall or posterior wall MI, hypotension and bradycardia, you basically need a lot of information, which is hard to obtain in the emergency room. You know, if you're going to temporize with a presser agent for 20 minutes until you can get the patient somewhere else, I think that's reasonable. But this is the kind of patient who needs to go to someplace an intensive care unit of some sort or a cath lab immediately, even if they kind of don't look all that sick. And I just want to reiterate, could you tell us about the dosing of atropine? And uh, Dr. Dorian had mentioned a little bit about the dosing, but what the newest guidelines are saying and uh, how you dose atropine for these uh, bradydysrhythmias. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked because that was such an important point that Paul brought up. Um, the atropine dose don't be wimpy. If it's going to work, it's going to be that first dose. So you want to maximize the opportunity for the atropine to do its thing the first round. So give that full one milligram. And that was an update in 2020 to the AHA ACC guidelines. Go ahead and give the one milligram and then wait. You can wait three to five minutes and you can certainly repeat the one milligram dose. If it's going to work, you should see something after that first dose of one milligram. If you don't see anything happen after one milligram of atropine, you can certainly get the second dose ready. But you need to start preparing for other agents and other modalities to treat this bradycardia. You could say that one of the pitfalls is underdosing atropine and waiting for it to work too long before moving on to one of the chronotropic drugs like epinephrine, for example. So yeah, two really important points there, the dosing and then moving quickly to your second uh, line medication, because if it's going to work, it's going to work quickly. Um, and then, of course, remembering that most really sick patients with bradycardia are not going to respond to atropine. 
Could you also uh, comment on the one exception in terms of the dosing when it comes to organophosphate poisoning? That's a great point. So we have the one milligram dose of atropine in the back of our minds, but if the history or the clinical context leads you to suspect an organophosphate poisoning, you're going to need way more. Um, so you may be depleting your atropine stores in the emergency department and may need to actually get some from um, alternate places. So at that point, you're talking about almost like grams of atropine that you may have to give um, in the severe organophosphate poisoning. Typically, we give atropine in those cases until you know the patient dries out. So when there's no longer, you know, stuff pouring out of them from their lungs, from their um, their mouth, they're drying out, that's the sign that the atropine is finally working. Let's say atropine doesn't work, which most of the time it does not work in these sick patients. What are your next drug cho- choices? We've got uh, dopamine, we've got epinephrine. I couldn't actually find much literature on dopamine at all. Dr. Hedayedi, we're more familiar with epinephrine now. You know, 15 years ago, we used to use dopamine a heck of a lot more. Is your second line go-to always epinephrine? When do you use dopamine? When do you use both? Any thoughts on that? So dopamine is pre-mixed in my emergency department, and it's readily available in the Pixis. Uh, the nurses can pull it out, hang it, and get it going very, very quickly. So if I don't have any time and I need to get something into the patient, then dopamine is the fastest agent that I can get on board. Uh, Epinephrine has to be mixed up. So I have to mix that up or the nurses have to mix that up in the emergency department. That being said, I prefer epinephrine. So if, if it's you know, if it's something that it's going to get done very, very quickly, I prefer the epinephrine. But you're right. Dopamine has sort of become this, you know, unpopular shunned agent um, that we hardly ever use anymore. The sympathetic agents have three effects. One is they increase sinus node rate. Isopraternal would be a drug that purely increases just the firing of the sinus node. They increase contractility, and dopamine is a pretty good drug to increase contractility, and they increase peripheral resistance. So epinephrine would be a drug that does all three. It increases sinus rate and increases contractility and increases peripheral resistance, which is increasing blood pressure, which is why epinephrine, if you like, is a kill three birds with one stone. I apologize for that metaphor. The downside is that if the patient has significant left ventricular dysfunction, then increasing peripheral resistance may cause worsening of left ventricular dysfunction. So if the cause of the shock is that the patient has myocarditis, for example, or severe heart failure or is on the transplant list, and they come in in heart failure and bradycardia for some reason, then you want to be careful about increasing peripheral resistance too much. These are tricky cases. So because we're kind of in an evidence-free zone, I think we could say that in terms of your second-line medication after atropine has failed, that you can use either dopamine or epinephrine. You know, if you're a senior resident who's walking around with push-dose epi already drawn up in their pocket, which I know some residents do, uh, you know, just go for it and the, and the patient's crashing in front of you, Sure give that. If you're in a place where you have to mix the epi and it takes time and the patient's crashing, maybe you want to start the dopamine first. Um, I don't think there's any hard evidence either way. So you do have those those options. Uh, and just to go over the dosing, 
So dopamine is 5 to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute. I want to talk about the dosing of epinephrine a bit. So a lot of people in the emerged in the last decade or so have been using push dose epi in the crashing patient. Um, but a lot of these patients might actually need an infusion of epinephrine. And the dosing for that is two to 10 micrograms per minute infusion. And uh, yes, you can use a peripheral line initially for this. Just make sure you're doing frequent limb checks. I just want to review how you would get an epidrip drawn up very quickly, the so-called dirty epidrip. Because this is this is one of the situations where if you have a crashing patient with bradycardia, you really want to get the epinephrine drip going as quickly as possible. So how do you go about doing that? Basically, what you need to do is grab one milligram of epinephrine. So typically, it's the, the cardiac epi that we have available, or if you have the little vial of epinephrine, but one milligram is what you need. And then you put that in a liter of normal saline. And so when you have one milligram of epinephrine in a thousand cc's of normal saline, you basically have one microgram per ml. And you can then hang that bag, you know, put a label on it so we all know what it is. And you can then hook that up to a pump and then start infusing through that. And so, you know, depending on the calculation you make on your patient's weight. If you do, you know, if you want one mic per minute, that's going to be 60 cc's per hour. If you want 10 mics per minute, that's going to be 600 cc's per hour. I understand that you can use that same bag of normal saline that you've mixed the epinephrine into to also draw out some push dose epi uh, that you can use sort of PRN in your crashing patient as well. Yeah, so you can pull out 10, 20 cc's of that same solution that you've mixed up, and then you can supplement that um, and push that in one cc at a time and until you get the blood pressure and heart rate that you're looking for. Let's say that this patient with bradycardia, you've given atropine, it doesn't work. You put on your pacing pads, trying to get that going, you can't capture your day is not going well, you've uh, mixed up your epinephrine, you've started them hanging dopamine, you've started an epinephrine drip, you've given a couple of boluses of push dosepi, and your patient is still not doing well. What's your sort of kitchen sink? And not necessarily to this patient who uh, who's an obvious ischemic patient, but what's your kind of kitchen sink in the dying bradycardia patient who you're who you might not even know what's going on because they just get dumped on your doorstep and they're dying with a heart rate of 25 yeah you're having a bad day you should have traded out of that shift <laughs> so um you know when we go back to the original kind of bat four bad things that we want to keep in the forefront of our mind when we approach a bradycardic patient so hyperkalemia was that first one and so i would I would throw calcium at the patient at this point. Um, I don't know what's going on. Maybe I don't have any labs back right now. Calcium's not going to harm them at this point. So I would go ahead and give the calcium. Not only will that take care of you know any sort of hyperkalemic issues, but if hypocalcemia is the issue, great, we'll give some calcium. And I think Amal Matu always says, you know, in the process, you'll make their bones stronger. So why not? Let's just make their bones stronger too with some IV calcium. We kind of address the cardiac ischemia and how challenging these patients can be to manage medications that can, you know, potentially make things worse. And then, you know, you've got the, the, 
the toxidromes. And so the, the, the beta blockers, the calcium channel blockers, DIG, which tends to be relatively rare at this point. Calcium may help if it ends up being a calcium channel blocker overdose. You know, with beta blockers, I think, you know, part of that kitchen sink and the last ditch effort might be glucagon at that point. But again, pretty low on our, you know, on our list of things we want to throw at the patient. But those are kind of the things I would reach for at that point when I'm throwing whatever's left in the emergency department at the patient. Mm -hmm. What about isoproteranol? So I kind of think of this as kind of uh, epinephrine on steroids. Uh, Dr. Doreen, you had mentioned that it works directly on the SA node. When would you pull out the isoproteranol? Well, I think if you if you have reason to believe that the problem is just so the sinus node's not working or the AV node's not working, then isoproteranol can definitely help. It's not a vasoconstrictor. If anything, it may vasodilate a little bit because it directly stimulates uh, peripheral vasodilatory beta receptors. In, in, a, in a healthy patient, what you see is sinus tachycardia, a slight increase in systolic pressure and a decrease in diastolic pressure. Mean blood pressure doesn't change very much. So you have to expect that if the patient has normal vasculature, then that's okay because their heart rate will go up. But if you're trying to get vasoconstriction, the isoprel is not your sort of drug of choice. If you're pretty confident that it's just a sinus node problem or just an AV node problem, then your isoproteranol can certainly be you know, quite reasonable. And here it's generally two to four mics per minute. Mm-hmm. And the, the patient who... Uh, we were talking about how sometimes we want to avoid epinephrine in the patient that we know has ischemia in front of us. Would isoproteranol then be a good choice in that situation? It would be, but those patients are often, you know, we're talking about patients who, unless it's an isolated sinus node issue, we're generally talking about, you know, sick cardiac patients where you're concerned about any sympathetic stimulation. I think it's hard for eMERGE docs because obviously the context is is challenging, but we shouldn't underestimate how quickly we can put in a transvenous pacemaker in a sick patient. Obviously in a patient who's where there's a code going on, it's pretty hard. But if a patient has a systolic pressure of 80 and you have 10 minutes, that should be enough time to put in a transvenous pacemaker. You know, with some experience, you can either put in a floatable swan where you don't need um, imaging. For those of us that have put in a lot of pacemaker wires from a, a jugular line, you can put in blindly a transvenous pacemaker and get it into the ventricle within 60 to 120 seconds, 90% of the time. It requires a bit of experience, but it's not complicated to put in a pacemaker from the neck just advance the wire. If you've got the right orientation, it'll go straight to the right ventricle. And now a word from a sponsor. Are you tired of the same old ER work situation? Do you feel like your dreams of being part of a high-performance team have faded? Do you wish that you lived and worked in a city surrounded by endless nature and waterfront? Well, look no further. North Bay Regional Health Centre is a shining star in Ontario's emergency medicine world. This department is on the cutting edge of emergency medicine with an excellent group of physicians and the latest and greatest SIMS educational opportunities and ED technology. Join this great eMERGE at a Level 3 Trauma Centre just three hours north of Toronto. It could be just what you need. All right, before we leave the drugs and get more deeply into uh, electrical options for treating bradycardia, the last drug I wanted to talk about was dobutamine. 
Does dobutamine really have any role in treating bradycardia when all else has failed? You know, the problem with dobutamine is that it's going to, yes, it's got beta agonist activity. You should see an increase in the heart rate. But there's also some alpha adrenergic activity, and it's going to cause some systemic vasodilation. So if you have a patient who is bradycardic and hypotensive, you're about to crash that patient out and bottom them out. And so in that scenario, then you do not want to reach for for dobutamine. You could make the situation far worse. Uh, I agree. It's not a drug that I would use for bradycardia. It's basically reserved for patients who have primarily left ventricular dysfunction and hypotension in an intensive care unit. So the key take-home message with drugs for bradycardia is don't wait too long for atropine to work because it works in less than a third of patients with bradycardia. You should be going straight to either epinephrine or dopamine or both while considering transcutaneous pacing in that really sick patient. And if you're throwing the typewriter at them, consider isoproteranol, consider calcium, consider high-dose insulin if there's a chance of beta blocker or calcium channel blocker overdose, and reverse any other underlying cause. If it's an MI, get them to the cath lab as soon as you can. If it's hypothermia, warm them. And if it's myxedema coma, they'll be getting thyroxin, et cetera. Uh, for those of you who remember typewriters, they're very heavy. Uh, they're usually museum pieces. You will hurt your back and you'll hurt the patient. So do not throw a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> Boo. Okay, Paul, Paul, that was the worst joke of the podcast by far. <laughs> Congratulations, an award in and of itself. <laughs> All right, let's move on to electricity. So transcutaneous pacing. Now, transcutaneous pacing, that's the life-saving bridge to definitive care in the really sick bradycardia patient, and you'll be starting it up in parallel with drugs in that crashing patient, as we were describing a bit earlier. What are the biggest pitfalls that you see when it comes to transcutaneous pacing? So number one is probably just not starting it early enough. I think there's this hesitancy to not use electricity in the emergency department, particularly transcutaneous pacing. So, you know, I think sort of that delay is probably the number one pitfall. The number two pitfall is seeing the electrical activity on the monitor or seeing, you know, the, the twitches of the muscle on the patient and assuming that that means ventricular output, that that's translating into some sort of cardiac output, which may not be the case at all. So you cannot just rely on the electrical activity that you see on the EKG or on the monitor. You want to correlate that either with, you know, a pulse ox wave so that you see that that those electrical stimuli are actually generating cardiac output or just do a bedside echo if you can. Now, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on in around the chest when we're managing these patients. So sometimes getting the probe in there can be challenging. But if you can then correlate those electrical impulses to you know, normal synchronized cardiac activity, then fabulous. Um, then you have actual capture. If you can't rely on pulse ox and you, you know, you don't have bedside echo and you need to do a pulse check to make sure that the electrical activity is correlating to output, you can use the femoral pulse to measure that. I would not use anything sort of proximal uh, because you may then sort of be fooled by 
the electrical activity and the muscle twitches along the pectorals and make you think that that is um, a pulse in the, let's say, carotid. So go femoral if you need to do an actual pulse check. A couple of other minor, but maybe not so minor points. Uh, you want to get electricity going across the heart. So you have to remember that your pads need to be put with the heart in between the pads. And we see this, of course, with um, cardioversion or defibrillation sometimes. When you see that in TV actors getting defibrillated or or even, I don't know, not paced maybe, the pads are often, the right-sided pad is just on the right side of the sternum and the left pad is in the anterior left sternum. The apical pad needs to be in the armpit, needs to be in the axilla. So you draw a line between the pads that goes through the heart. So you have to be careful, make sure that the pads are really far apart. The second thing is just to emphasize what Tarlin just said, when you look at the screen, what you will see is the pacing artifact, which completely overwhelms the evoked QRS potential. So you'll see a huge spike every time you give a pacing impulse, and you've, it's very hard to tell sometimes on the monitor whether you have an evoked QRS complex or not. You really have to go by the hemodynamic consequence rather than just looking at the ECG. And, and you'll get a lot of muscular contraction when you pace. So it's pretty unpleasant. It's unpleasant for the patient. It's unpleasant for the caregivers. You're using, you know, high levels of electricity, and uh, it basically kind of looks nasty, but it still works. And I'm going to piggyback on what Paul said with the high levels of electricity. And so I think that's sort of like the last pitfall is that, you know, because especially if the patient is awake and mentating, we want to kind of go low and, you know, start gently and make our way up. But if you have a sick patient that, and you want to start transcutaneous pacing because they're crashing, start high. So start high and you can dial it down, but don't start low and wimpy and then try to make the climb up. So that would be sort of the last pitfall. All right. So you're saying start at like 100 milliamps and then go down slowly until you reach that threshold where you want to get the lowest milliamps that will capture, as opposed to the traditional teaching is start at five milliamps and then slowly go up until you do capture. That's fine in the stable-ish patient, but there aren't too many cases where you're going to be using transcutaneous patient in a stable patient. In a stable patient, you'll go to transvenous. So really, from an emergency perspective, it's start high, 100 milliamps, and then come down. Exactly. That's the milliamps. What about the rate? Dr. Dorian, what do you suggest we we try and set the rate at? I've heard all kinds of different things. How do you decide what rate to set at? It, it's actually a great question, and uh, I will tell you I have no evidence. I don't know of any trials that have compared the various kinds. The cardiac output will, in most patients, not be very different at rates somewhere between 60 and 80. So empirically, we probably would, 60 is a pretty reasonable number. If you go too fast then your cardiac output may fall. But generally speaking, what happens when your rate is higher, that your um, cardiac output will be the same and your stroke volume will go down, but you have more beats per minute, so your overall cardiac output stays the same. I would tend to, uh, just going from first principles, not want to pace too quickly just because it's painful and, and you get more stimulation. I'm not sure there's much to be gained by pacing at 80, for example, as opposed to 60. The reason I'm saying this is when we're in the intensive care unit and we have bradycardic patients that are shocky or very sick and they have a, a, a pacemaker in, we tend to want to pace at 65 or so uh, and the anesthetists often want to put it up to 80 or 90 or 100 per minute. 
And sometimes the blood pressure is a little higher, but the cardiac output doesn't go up. So I'm unaware of any evidence that says you need to go faster than somewhere between 60 and 70 a minute. All right, great. So that's that's the uh, the rate that you want to set it at. You had mentioned that this is a painful procedure, very uncomfortable for the patient. Dr. Hedeidi, what's your go-to sedation and analgesia drugs? Because we've probably all been in that situation with a really sick patient. We put on the transcutaneous pacing. The nurses ask you if you want meds. You're like, we don't have time. You start the transcutaneous pacing, and then the patient screams with every shock delivered. How do you go about the sedation and analgesia? What are your go-to, and what do we need to be kind of wary of? I feel as an emergency physician, uh, I am required to say ketamine as the first agent that I would use. So uh, ketamine it is. Um, but, you know, it, it really is a, a lovely agent in that it is not going to compromise their, their respiratory rate and their respiratory effort, but will dissociate them enough that I'm not going to have to worry about the pain that's inflicted by the, the transcutaneous pacing. If for some reason ketamine is not available, Yikes. We can also use Atomidate. So Atomidate is another agent um, that I like. It's cardiostable. Um, and I know anesthesia likes to use it um, for the cardiac cases for induction. And we can do a lower procedural sedation dose of 0.1 mg per kg. And then sort of my third agent or my third go-to would probably be midazolam. And so a benzo just to take the edge off and um, hopefully provide enough sedation that they're not uncomfortable from the transcutaneous pacing and even potentially make them forget the entire thing. All right, let's move on from transcutaneous pacing to transvenous pacing. How does transvenous pacing compare to transcutaneous pacing in terms of its effectiveness? And when would you choose transvenous pacing over transcutaneous? Dr. Dorian? It's really just a matter of time and opportunity. I think it's pretty self-evident that transvenous pacing is almost invariably effective if you can get the pacemaker wire in the right place, which is almost always the case. Obviously, ideal to have imaging. Um, we tend to do it with fluoroscopy, but in an absolute emergency, you can try putting in a transvenous wire without uh, without uh, fluoroscopic imaging. Obviously, if you have a an internal jugular line and it doesn't work, you can always move the patient to somewhere where you have fluoroscopy. Everything else being equal, you really want, if you need to maintain heart rate for a while, a transcutaneous spacing, you just a bridge to transvenous spacing. Depending on the scenario where you are physically in the hospital, the degree of expertise, the number of hands, the patient's ambient blood pressure, I'd much prefer go to, to go directly to transvenous pacing unless you think you can't get that in quickly enough that the, the patient's going to survive. All right. And that segues nicely into who should be doing the transvenous pacer. Um, so, you know, should it be in every emergency doctor's wheelhouse to do it? You know, if we're using transcutaneous pacing to bridge, is it reasonable to ask the cardiologist or the anesthetist or the intensivist to come down and sync the pacer while we're busy taking care of other patients? What's your What's your take on that? Who, who should be putting in that transvenous pacer? All of the above, uh, but the emergency physician has to be able to do this procedure. So 
If you are an emergency department at a fancy academic center where you have fellows and you have cardiologists and all sorts of people available to you at all times, that is amazing and awesome. But if you work somewhere where you are going to now have to transfer that patient out to another facility for higher level of care or you don't have an in-house cardiologist and it's going to take time for someone to come in and help you manage this patient, you must be able to keep this patient alive. And transvenous pacing is part of that armamentarium. So whether it's you know, looking up models that are readily available online, going through the kit periodically, making sure you understand the various parts. You know, there's videos online that you can watch to refresh. Um, and then there's simulation opportunities as well, whether it's at your own institution or at some of these various courses that are available. But this has to be in our wheelhouse. Let me try something on for size here for the group. If you're in a desperate situation First, put in an IJ line, obviously. Then take your transcutaneous pacer, mark off roughly 40 centimeters to 50. You can even do this just on the patient's chest. You kind of know where the tip of the right ventricle is. So just make a, a mental note of how far in the wire is going to have to be. Connect it to the transcutaneous uh, uh, external box. Put it on maximum sensitivity and turn the voltage down to zero. So you're not pacing, you're just sensing. And watch the little light. You know what the heart rate is because the patient usually has a heart rate of 10, 20, 30. And just advance the wire, just position it so that the tip is pointing slightly leftward. There's usually a bit of a curve in the uh, in the pacemaker wire because it's going in the right neck. So you want it aiming a little bit to the to the left. And just advance it until you see the little light flashing synchronous with what you know the heart rate is. Heart rate's 30, just look for 30 flashes per minute, one every two seconds. And then you know you're in the ventricle. And then you can turn on the, the voltage and just turn it up until you get capture on the ECG. Another the modality you could use is just point-of-care ultrasound as well. Yes. And so putting the probe on the chest and watching that wire come down through the right atrium into that right ventricle is another easy way so that it's less blind in essence. Absolutely. So we've talked about transcutaneous pacing. We've talked about transvenous pacing. There's also the permanent pacer. And I, I think it's really important for us to know which patients with bradycardia might end up requiring a permanent pacemaker because that'll help guide our follow-up arrangements and help counsel our patients on what to expect next. So Dr. Dorian, generally speaking, what are the indications for a permanent pacemaker? It's a, it's a very important question, obviously. You know, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not a decision that I've often made in the emergency room. I mean, if I go to down to emerge in a patient who's bradycardic, I'm usually worried about the here and now, and I defer a decision about permanent pacing. So I'm struggling to think about... Um, sort of how you can tell acutely. Basically, if a patient is otherwise reasonably well and presents with sudden onset distal AV block, most of the time they're going to require permanent pacing. If they present with proximal AV block or sinus node disease, then they may or may not need a permanent pacemaker, but that decision is hardly ever needed to be made even on this hospitalization. Remember, I said this earlier, sinus node disease and AV node disease are rarely, rarely immediately fatal or life-threatening. Patients get better. They get better either with 
treating the underlying condition or with removing uh, bradycardia influences or with tincture of time, or they may just be bradycardic and symptomatic, but they're not going to die on you or go into shock. So proximal AV block and sinus node disease, the decision can almost always be deferred. Even sometimes you can send a patient home with a heart rate of 38. I have many patients that I follow who have AV block, proximal AV block, resting heart rate in the high 30s, low 40s, exercise heart rates in the 60s. They're asymptomatic. They may have discovery of AV block for some other reason, and there's no rush to making that decision. Distal AV block, you always have to admit, figure out what the problem is, and often they're going to require permanent pacing. We're coming near the end of this podcast. I just want to kind of wrap up by you guys shouting out the biggest pitfalls that you see in general in the management of patients with bradycardia. We can take turns. Probably fussing with a patient who's otherwise stable. I think people get hung up on a number and they don't look at the whole patient and there's this drive to do something about the heart rate. And I think most of the time, we can take a step back and ride it out. Unless the patient is crashing in front of you, you don't have to treat that one individual number. Dr. Dorian, your turn. Essentially the same thing. Two situations. One is overtreatment. The other is undertreatment. Overtreatment is a patient with sinus bradycardia or proximal AV block caused by vasovagal syndrome where they don't need any treatment. You can just give them a glass of Gatorade and send them home. On the other hand, Distal AV block, let's say an elderly patient with a history of syncope comes in uh, and they're, you're watching them, they got left bundle branch block, they're in sinus rhythm, their rate goes to 100, and they drop a couple of P waves here and there. Clinically asymptomatic. That's bad news, right? They have distal AV block, sinus tachycardia, even two or three non-conductive P waves, you have to worry. And those patients will likely end up with a pacemaker, even though the actual amount of block looks really minor on the, on the screen. So I come back and I apologize for, half apologize for repeating myself. Proximal AV block, no big deal. You can send them home. You don't have to worry. Distal AV block, big deal. Worry and admit them. Excellent. I think really identifying the difference between stability and instability, using perfusion as as the marker and not just the individual heart rate. I think once you make the decision to treat, treat appropriately. So if the decision is to, to give atropine, then give the one milligram. If the patient's going to need transcutaneous pacing, start high, make your way down low, but commit to the treatment and move forward. And Dr. Dorian, we'll give you one more chance to, uh, Give us one of your... Uh... No, I, 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 I'm not sure I have any more pearls. They're all around somebody's neck and no, no longer on my lips. <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. Well, after being bathed in all this bradycardia goodness, I'm feeling so great that my current resting heart rate is about 35, I think. So thank you so much for your insights into the world of bradycardias. Dr. Heda Itty and Dr. Dorian, your insights, I'm sure, will be fantastic for all the listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you.